Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning, we are going to be discussing the Torah portion that has been read in the Jewish community this past week. It is entitled Ki Tisa, and it was found in Exodus 30, beginning on verse 11, and continued through Exodus 34. Verse 35, in addition, this past Shabbat was Shabbat Parah, and we're going to speak a bit about Shabbat Parah. And to add to our enjoyment this morning, uh, my guest, Rabbi Eric Wisnio, will be chatting a bit about the connection of this parashah that to the holiday of Purim that recently was celebrated on Monday Sunday Monday evening and uh, Tuesday morning of this past week. So Kitisa finds the people of Israel in the midst of their journey from Egypt until uh, the promised land. And the people of Israel are told to each contribute exactly a half shekel of silver to the sanctuary. Instructions were also given regarding the making of the sanctuary and the water basin and the anointing oil and the incense and the artisans Bitzalel and Ahulev are placed in charge of the sanctuary. And once again, we find that the... um, Israelites are reminded about Shabbat, but the centerpiece of this week's parasha is the episode of the golden calf. When Moses does not return when expected from Mount Sinai, the people make a golden calf and worship it. God proposes to destroy this recalcitrant and revolting nation, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses now descends from the mountain, carrying the tablets of the testimony engraved with the Ten Commandments. Seeing the people dancing around the idol, he breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, and has the primary culprits put to death, though not his brother Aaron, who seems to have colluded with the uh, plotters. He then returns to God to say, if you do not forgive them, blot me out from the book that you have written. Please remember this notion of book. God forgives, but he says that the effect of their sin will be felt for many generations. At first, God proposes to send his angel along with them. But Moses insists that God himself accompany the people to the promised land. Moses prepares a new set of tablets and once more ascends the mountain, where God reinscribes the covenant on the second tablets. On the mountain, Moses is also granted a vision of the 13 divine attributes of mercy. So radiant is Moses' face upon his return that he must cover it in a veil, which he removes only to speak with God and to teach his laws to the people. Parenthetically, the notion of a um, radiant Moses is uh, expressed in Michelangelo's portrayal 
of uh, Moses with the tablets, although there, instead of radiant light rays, uh, it was interpreted as horns. So in this beautiful piece of sculpture, Moses seems to have horns, a mistranslation of the Hebrew. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is also Shabbat Parah. Shabbat Parah is added to the weekly reading on the next to the last Shabbat of the month of Adar, or when the last Shabbat uh, of that month and uh, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the month in which Pesach will be observed, falls on a Shabbat. Parad details the laws of the red heifer and the process by which a person rendered ritually impure by contact with a dead body was purified. When the holy temple stood in Jerusalem, every Jew had to be in a state of ritual purity in time for the annual Passover offering. So this spoke to how those who might not have been ritually pure uh, became ritually pure. Today, though we are unable to fulfill the temple-related rituals in practice, many traditional Jews fulfill them by spiritually studying their laws. And as such, we study and read the section of Parah, the red heifer, in preparation for the upcoming festival of Passover, which comes approximately one month after the holiday of Purim. So as I mentioned, my guest this morning is Rabbi Eric Wisnia. Eric Wisnia is a rabbi in New Jersey, and he was the founding rabbi of his congregation. Uh, it's a pleasure to have him with me to discuss uh, the parasha. Rabbi Wisnia was the founding rabbi of Congregation Beit Chaim in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, and he served there for nearly 40 years, and uh, now he is the rabbi emeritus. Rabbi Wisnia, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. What an honor and pleasure to be here. Well, it's certainly a pleasure for our listeners to have an opportunity to learn with you this morning. And as I've explained to our listeners, we're talking about the parasha Kitisa. And I wanted to begin with a wonderful uh, set of verses from Exodus 33, which I'll read. Uh, and I know that you have some comments about it. Exodus, yes, thank you. Exodus 33 finds Moses on the mountain again, and I'm going to begin with um, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, Gam et adavar hazeh, I will also do this thing that you have asked. For you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out from by name. And Moses responds, Oh, let me behold your presence. And God now answers Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of God and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show you. 
But in verse 20, God says, but you not cannot see my face for human beings may not see me and live. And I know that you were especially taken by some of the Hebrew used in these verses. So would you share with our audience uh, what struck you as uh, powerful in these verses? Yes, thank you, Rabbi. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange uh, um, passage there. Um, in the in the beginning, of course, uh, we're dealing with the uh, the, the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf, and uh, Israel sins, and that's very well known. And I don't need to tell you how some people certainly know what I know does seem to put money in a more important role than people. Um, there's some a few people in America do that. I'm sure no one in Canada does. We have but, no uh, money in Canada, so it's okay. <laughs> That's what happens when you have a democratic socialist state. <laughs> I will take that as a cautionary tale of, about Bernie Sanders. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, the, the point I have to start with, uh, Rabbi, is that uh, as a, a, a rabbi, I've learned to take the Torah seriously, but you can't take the Hebrew literally. Hebrew, let me repeat that, because I think it's a very important thing for everyone to understand, that we take Torah seriously, but it's very hard to take Hebrew literally, because Hebrew is not like English. Hebrew is such a different language, with such a paucity of vocabulary, that you have to translate, you have to interpolate, you have to add on and find what the nuance of, of the, the text is really saying. So for those for who are a little less conversant with Hebrew than our guest, Hebrew is uh, a language in which every word has three root letters. But right. there are prefixes and suffixes that give it uh, gender and case and number. And so what appears to be the meaning of a three-root-letter word in one circumstance could be very different in another circumstance, depending on the prefixes and the suffixes. Is that helpful? Thank you. That's exactly right. And and, and depending upon the context. Correct. And Hebrew has such fewer words. For instance, in Hebrew, one would say, hamelech, molech. Al-Hahamlacha, the king kinged over his kingdom. Right? The now, same three English root letters are used for a noun and an adjective and a verb. Right, and you wouldn't do that in English. You wouldn't say the king kinged over his kingdom. You, you know, would say the king was sovereign over the land. Right. You English is a different translation. In fact, the rabbis play with the Hebrew very often. That's why we developed Midrash, to explain and understand. So in these three verses, Mm -hmm. what struck you as interesting about the Hebrew? Right. First, I'll go back a few sentences to to number 11 in that chapter, where God, uh, where it says uh, that Moses knew God, Panim el Panim, you know, punim to punim, right. face to face. 
and, and, and the Hebrew says that uh, God spoke to Moses face to face. Right, as if God had, you know, like words, like God said, That's Good right. morning, Moshe, how are you? And Moshe said, oh, thank you, boss. You know, I'm doing good. The family's all right. Um, what it says in, in verse 11 is that God speaks to Moses as, uh, as a man speaks to his friend. In other words, intimately. God knows, excuse me, the other way, Moses knows God more intimately than any other human being. So Moses then says to God, let me see your face. Now, I don't think he means that God has a body and God has a face. And although it says, show me, you know, your 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 glory. These are euphemisms for show me who you really are. I want to see God. We talk, you command me, you run the Jewish people, you give us mitzvot, you tell us what to do. Who are you, really? And there is, for our listeners who may not have the text, this juxtaposition of verse 11, which Rabbi Wisnia introduced to us, which seems to suggest that they have an intimate uh, relationship. The Hebrew is ka'asher ber ish el ra'ehu. Uh, we speak as if we were speaking in a friendly tone, um, and now, um, which implies that we know each other, uh, and now, uh, six or eight verses later, G- Moses says to God, well, I still don't know who you are. Show me who you are. Right. I want to see your punim. Right. And God, and God says to him, you can't see my punim and live. What does that mean? God is so ugly that if you take a look, you'll, your, your head will fall off? Obviously not. Obviously not. Panim el panim doesn't mean face-to-face, but in English, that's a wonderful image. What Moses is asking is, let me see who you really are. And God says to him, you can't. You're human. You're locked into your body. You see with human eyes. God is not human. We can't, we talk about God like, you know, he's big daddy in the sky. We talk about that because human beings have to use English words. And we have words and we call God him. It doesn't mean God is a man and not a woman. God is beyond that concept. But I I want to help our listeners get to the essence of what's important to you. And that is in verse 23. Because you want to make a comparison with Vahasiroti et Kapi, the Raita et Ahorai Upanai Lo Yarehu. And you want to focus on Vahasiroti, if I'm not mistaken. And take. Well, what I wa- yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't want to focus so much on the fact of let me, you know, uh, put my hand over the cleft. But let me, you can look at my back. That's what I want to focus on. Where God says to Moses, you can see my back, my gav, but not my panim. Perfect. What's the difference between your gav and your back and your your punim, your face? If I look at your face and we're talking, and we're talking face to face, I can see in your eyes whether you're bored to death or whether you're interested, whether you love me whether you hate me, whether you understand me, whether you don't understand me. I can see from the expression on your face 
what you're saying, whether you're making a joke, whether you're smiling when you say it, whether you're angry. If I see your face, I can really get to know who you are pretty well. Now, if you turn around and speak to me facing the wall and all I see is your back, I'm not really sure what's going on. I can't really know that I understand you. You could be rolling your eyes at the same moment when you say you love me. You could be laughing when you say, you know, you're pretty handsome, and you could be like almost falling over because you don't believe that. So when I see your back, I don't see you clearly. So, I don't really get to see your essence. I get to know a bit about you. So is the text suggesting that God, that human beings want to know the essence of God, but the text is suggesting that God doesn't want human beings to know God's essence or doesn't no. want God's essence to be known so easily? I don't think it's that God doesn't want. I think it's that human beings can't. Aha. That God is implying that you can't see me and live doesn't mean, uh, as the Hebrew seems to imply, if you look at me, you'll die. It means, no, you're living. You're matter. You see through eyes. You perceive through hands. You know, you can't see an atom. How can you perceive an atom? You're so big that, you know, I tell you, and then now they tell me there's quarks. I don't even understand what a quark is. But there are, you know, or protons. What's a pro? I can't see an atom. You want me to understand a proton? I, it, I don't think when it says that if you see me, you'll die. God is implying that I'll have to kill you if you see me, or I don't want you to know. But the fact that you are a creation, you are human being and matter, that you can't know God who's beyond that. That that's really the implication. You'll never know who I really am, because you can't. You're locked into your body. You're locked into time and place and space. And you can't get out of that. And, and so, having said that about the text, mm -hmm. that human beings and God exist on very different levels. Right. And that the attempt by Moses to bring God to the level of uh, friendship is a discordant note in the text. Um, and if I... Because God and Moses are not friends. Correct. They're not pals. <laughs> so the text would like us to both understand that there is the possibility of an intimate relationship with Moses as expressed in verse 11. But when we get to the end of that chapter, we recognize that God has a transcendent uh, character as well, that God uh, is not always intimate with us. Uh, would that be the way you'd understand the... Yes, that, that's very good. In fact, you should be a rabbi, you know, that's really, that's really a good point you're making there, that, that we want, of course, we want to see God's face. We want to know God. You know, we, we want God on our level so we can understand, but that's not possible. You know, it's, uh, I remember, um, 
Dr. Bricktail, one of our teachers. A teacher uh, of, uh, of biblical Hebrew and the biblical text in the seminary entitled Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, who right. uh, we, Rabbi Wisnia yeah. and I studied with many decades ago. Yes, yes. And I remember he said to me once, he said, Eric, what does forever mean? And I said, I don't know, Dr. Bricktail, you tell me. He said, it means from your grandpa to your grandson. And if you can forgive the sexism, what he was implying was, what's my forever? Okay, I knew, I actually knew my great-grandpa, so maybe I could go back that far. But a thousand years? I can't imagine a thousand years. That for me, forever meant, you know, my lifetime and the lifetime of my children. And so it was that Hebrew... I want forever on my level. I want Hebrew on my level. I want God for my, on my level. And we can't always know exactly who God is. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to find out. And, you know, I'd like to suggest, I don't know if we have time, to segue a little bit, since we're talking about identity and who you are, we just finished with Purim. Do we have time to shift so, so to we have a th- Yes, we do have some time left. Um, and I think it would be interesting for our listeners for you to make that segue. So um, the holiday of Purim is observed by the reading of a book entitled The Book of Esther, which is found in the third section of the Hebrew Bible known as Ketuvim, the writings. Um, and it's the story uh, purports to tell us about uh, Jews living in Persia and the story of Mordechai and his niece Esther and their intersection with the authoritative uh, governing rulers of the land of Shushan, which is one of the uh, principal uh, cantons of Persia. And so um, in the few minutes that's available to us, why don't you talk about the issue of identity? Because I think that's the comparison you want to make about being known and being hidden. Thank you. Um, I think that's true. You know, there's the story of a Purim uh, is always a lot of fun. And a lot of people think that there's it's just a children's story. But I I don't think so, although uh, I think there's something we have to learn, particularly from Esther. Um, Esther, of course, is uh, her Persian name. Her her Hebrew name was Hadassah. uh, But, uh, like, I have an American name, Eric. My Hebrew name is Eliyahu. She also, she had a Persian name, Esther, which is from uh, Ishtar, the Persian goddess of fertility. But her real Hebrew name was Hadassah, but nobody knew her Hebrew name because she hid her identity. Esther uh, lived in an assimilated world. Uh, The Jews were part of the Persian Empire around the beginning of the 4th century BCE. And her uncle Mordechai, again, a Persian name, uh, but then, you know, it's like uh, her uncle uh, Christopher. It wasn't a Jewish name, but... They call him Mordechai the Jew because they want to point out that even though his name was Mordechai, he was very Jewish. As opposed to Esther, who hid the fact that she was a Jew. She makes her way into the Persian court. She becomes one of uh, the king's uh, harem. And uh, 
nobody knows she's a Jew. Well, as everyone knows in the story, that uh, Haman, Haman, uh, the other king, the vizier of the king, hates Mordechai and finds out that Mordechai is a Jew, and he hates all Jews. He knows one Jew, Mordechai, and he says, I hate them all. And he goes to the king and he says, they don't follow your laws, your majesty. Now he knows one Jew, and he blames them all for not following his laws. And the king lets him get away with it, because Haman says, you know, if we get rid of all the Jews, and we nationalize all their money and take all their wealth, you can make a lot of profit off this king. So the king says, good, do what you want. And, and, and we accept that this is a story that's been repeated hundreds of times in Jewish history. And yet, unfortunately, the, unfortunately and yet the story is certainly uh, more than 2,000 years old. Right. Um, so right. I believe it comes from, from around the year 400 BCE. So that's 2,500 that, years ago. Right, right. And that it's actually, there's more truth in the story than we actually like to, uh, or than we actually admit, because we use the, the Hebrew term for the king Ahasuerus, which actually is the, uh, he, the Hebrew version of the Persian king Xerxes. So, Rabbi Wisnia, I, yes. I, I think all of our listeners would be fascinated if we continued talking about the story. But I know that in the limited time that we have, just a few minutes, I want to make that uh, segue that you so wonderfully offered us between the not knowing God and something in the story that resonated with you about hidden identity. Okay, let's go back to the story. And Esther is confronted by Mordechai, who's the only one who knows she's a Jew, her uncle. And he says to her, listen, Haman's going to kill all the Jews. And she, ha- she says to him, I heard, but no one knows I'm a Jew. So what do I care? She's totally assimilated. She does nothing Jewish. She doesn't care about her identity, her people, or anything. And Mordecai says to her something interesting. He says to her, why is it, honey, that you're in such a wonderful position? Do you think you deserve it more so than everybody else? Do you think that you deserve God's blessings more so than everybody else? Perhaps God put you in this position and gave you honor and beauty and good looks and everything and power just so that you might be in a position to do some good. And he says to her, if you don't use your position to do good, maybe just as easily God will take it away. Maybe you don't deserve it more than everybody else. Maybe you've been given a chance, and you'd better use it to do some good. And what makes... And and this is from uh, chapter 4, verse 14, where Mordechai says... If you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained this royal position for just such a crisis. Yes. And what makes her the hero of the Jewish people is that she decides to risk everything and step up. And here this assimilated Jewish girl who doesn't even use her Hebrew name Hadassah, calls herself Esther, who has married the big Zoroastrian of the Persian Empire, 
who, as no, no one knows she's a Jew and has done nothing Jewish, suddenly says, you know what, maybe you're right. And I'm willing to risk everything to do the right thing and put my life on the line to save innocent people. And we are going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, there is just too much to speak about between the parasha and the book of Purim. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Eric Wisnia of Princeton Junction, New Jersey, uh, for his insights for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of our show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. For those who might want to offer a question, you can email jff at chri.ca. Good morning and have a great day. Shalom.